The Bible reading today is taken from Acts 12, 1 to 25. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your cloth, clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace, because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is a voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we resume this series on Acts. Lord Father, we thank you so much that after Jesus died and rose, he kept his promise and sent his spirit when he returned to you. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit lives in those who believe. And just as your spirit was at work in the apostles' lives and the disciples of the first century, 
Your spirit continues to be mightily at work in and through us now. So as we resume our series on Acts, may your spirit be mightily at work in opening our eyes and ears to see and hear that Christ is Lord, that his gospel has saved and is continuing to save people as it's preached throughout all nations. And may it stir in us now and forever a longing for the proclamation of the gospel by the power of your spirit in bringing your people into your home. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I like to be liked, and I'm sure that you like to be liked too, don't you? We all do. We want people to like us and not hate us. We want our friends to like hanging out with us, and we want our family to like having us around. We like to be liked. And maybe that's why it's hard to be a Christian, because when we become a Christian, some people stop liking us. At best, they want us to stop talking about Jesus, and at worst, they uh, stop talking to us completely. And it's understandable, isn't it? I mean, the gospel is offensive. It's saying that there's absolute truth, God's truth, revealed truth in God's word. So even though the gospel is good news for us, some people take offense to it. Because for them, it's not good news. They don't hear the good news that God saves, that God forgives sins. What they hear is that they've done something wrong and that they need to repent, that they need forgiveness. They don't like hearing that. They don't like hearing that they've been wrong, that they need to repent that they need forgiveness. And because it's offensive, the gospel can be seen as offensive. No one likes to be wrong. And so when they reject the gospel, we feel that they've rejected us as well. And so it makes us fearful of sharing the gospel, lest we become disliked. But it's not just those who are close to us who might not like the fact that we're Christians. Our society and our government is becoming increasingly hostile. So you might remember uh, FIRAS, uh, Fairness in Religions in School. They aggressively pushed to end scripture teaching in primary schools. Uh, There was nothing fair about their agenda, yet they won. And so I used to teach Christian and religious education, just as some of you did, at Campbell South Primary School across the road. But we no longer do that, do we? Because we're not allowed to. And when I was an Anglican chaplain at the University of Melbourne, the university slashed our budget to zero dollars, even though we were all honorary staff. And when they planned to move our offices from one building to another, they even refused to give us space to do pastoral uh, work. No privacy for the needy students as we attended to their needs. I mean, some people say that it's only a matter of time before we'll not be able to freely, without persecution, to evangelize here in Australia. And so I wonder whether you ever feel defeated as a Christian. You share the gospel with the people you love, but they still haven't become a Christian. You vote for the right parties and write letters to your MP, yet safe school still proves too powerful. As Christians, it's easy to feel defeated, that we're on the losing team. And and so, as fewer people attend church and more people become antagonistic towards Christianity, uh, you might be wondering, is it worth persevering with evangelism, uh, even at the risk of not being liked? Is it worth engaging the government to uphold religious freedom, even if it feels like our voice isn't heard? 
Well, as you might remember from our studies in Acts last year, the challenges we face in the 21st century aren't unique to us. Christians in the first century weren't liked by those around them either. In fact, their experience was far worse than ours. They were smaller and even more insignificant in the world's eyes. And they weren't just disliked, they were even hated. Hated to the extent that they were persecuted and killed simply because they were Christians. So let me uh, remind you of some of the things that we saw last year in Acts chapter 3 and 4 when Peter miraculously healed a crippled man. He did a good deed at the temple. But what he received was an acclamation from the religious leaders but imprisonment for speaking about Jesus. A similar thing happens in Acts chapter 5 and it comes to a uh, climax in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen to death. And if that wasn't bad enough for the early Christians, it gets worse. You see, persecution didn't just come from religious leaders. Persecution also came from the government of the day. And we see that in today's passage. So have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Here James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This time the disciples were being persecuted not from the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, but for political reasons from the Roman government. And King Herod's to blame. Now, King Herod, this King Herod, is King Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of King Herod the Great. Now, King Herod the Great is the king who sent soldiers to look for Jesus when he was a toddler to go to Bethlehem to kill any boy two years and under. You might remember that story. But this King Herod is not that King Herod. They've got the same name, but he's the grandson. He's the grandson, King Herod Agrippa. But he does what his father had done, uh, grandfather had done, to destroy Jesus and his followers. And so this time he kills James. James the Great, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, one of the three closest apostles of Jesus. And he does that for political reasons. And if that wasn't bad enough, he then goes after Apostle Peter too. So verse 3. What he saw that, uh, when he saw that this met with approval from the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of the unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. You see, Christians were considered a small and insignificant sect, a pest to the Jews, disposable by the Romans. Herod didn't care if Christians didn't like him, but he cared a great deal if the Jews didn't like him. And so he wanted to do what the Jews wanted, to gain their favour, to get their support. They were far more valuable to him than Christians were. And because they had attempted many revolts, and to keep them on side, to keep them happy, he arrests Peter, the leader of the church, locks him up in prison, surrounds him with maximum security, which is ludicrous. This guy's a fisherman. He's a, he's a preacher, but he's surrounded by maximum security. That, that, that's how fearful they are of Christianity. And it's ludicrous, isn't it? Because Peter hasn't done anything wrong. What's he, what's he been doing? Preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, healing the sick, casting out demons. They've been doing good. And yet he's under arrest, deserving death or an imprisonment for some strange reason. 
treated like murderers and villains by the government. I mean, if you were a Christian in the first century, how would you feel? If the government came now to arrest all of us because we went to church and surrounded us with maximum security, wouldn't that be ludicrous? I mean, that was what was happening in the first century. It would make, make you feel so defeated, wouldn't it? To feel like the world is against you. The religious leaders are after you. The government is looking for you. You're the most wanted people in the entire Roman Empire simply because you're a Christian, simply because you're proclaiming the good news, simply because you're healing the sick, simply because you're caring for the widows and the orphans. You're arrested. You're even killed by your own government. As you might wonder, is it worth persevering with evangelism, even at the risk of being killed? Well, persecution didn't deter the early Christians from sharing the gospel. Rather, it forced them to trust in God. And so presumably in chapter 12, verse 12, they prayed for Peter's release uh, from prison. Now, not for the first time or the second time, but for the third time, they kept persevering in trusting in God, in praying for their leaders, in praying that the gospel might continue to bring out. And so we, as we've seen in earlier in chapter 4, verse 29, persecution led them to pray for boldness. Persecution led them to share the gospel even more fervently. And the result led the word of God to spread and to flourish, which is the complete opposite of what the government tried to do, the religious leaders tried to do. As they were being clamped down, the Christians trusted in God and the gospel flourished. And so in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, despite the fact that all the apostles had just been arrested and released from prison, we were told that the number of disciples didn't decrease, but increase. And in Acts chapter 8, when Stephen was stoned to death, persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all the disciples were scattered throughout the region, Judea and Samaria. And what happened? Well, Saul went on a rampage mission to persecute and kill the Christians, to destroy the church. But despite that, what happens? Philip shares the gospel with the Samaritans, and they believe. He then expounds the gospel from the Old Testament to a eunuch, and he believes. And if that wasn't encouraging enough, the great persecutor of the church himself, Saul, the Apostle Paul, who became the Apostle Paul, Saul is converted on the road to Damascus. And eventually the Gentile Cornelius and his entire household believe as well. Persecution led more and more people to believe. And so here you have a half-caste Jew and an outcast eunuch a persecutor of the church and Gentiles all coming to saving faith because of persecution. Despite the persecution, God's word continued to go out through, the, through his people. They continued to faithfully trust in him, continued to faithfully proclaim the gospel, and God used that to save people, save Samaritans, save Gentiles, save half-caste people, save Jewish people. And so in chapter 11, verse 20, we hear how some Christians went to Antioch uh, to spread the good news. And the result was astonishing. Verse 21, in chapter 11, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And, and then in chapter 12, even though Herod imprisoned Peter, locked him up with maximum security, God sends an angel to save him, verse 7. He escapes in verse 12, goes to the house of Mary, and after telling them what had happened, in verse 17, Peter leaves them. And we don't hear much of Peter again. 
This is kind of the transition point in the book of Acts, where up to this point, we, Peter is almost like the main character, where he's the one are preaching. He's the one who's healing. He's the one who's locked up in prison. He's the one who's being persecuted. But there's a transition point. Because up until this point, it's mostly about God's work through the Apostle Peter. And what we'll see from next week is that Paul takes center stage. Because the gospel now goes out to the Gentiles. Peter, the Apostle to the Jews, is now transitioning to Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Because Acts shows us the formation of the early church and how the gospel is for all people. But we know from Galatians, we know from 1 Corinthians, and early church tradition, that Peter's ministry doesn't stop here. Peter's ministry continues. He continues his travels. He continues to share the gospel. He continues to build up the church. He ends up in Rome, proclaiming God Christ crucified there, building up the church in Rome, and is eventually crucified upside down according to church tradition, because of his ministry. You see, friends, persecution was real in the early church. It was unwelcomed, but it wasn't a surprise. For just as Jesus carried his cross, so he also warned his disciples that they must carry their cross and follow him. Just as he was persecuted, so his disciples will too. But just as the cross led to the resurrection... So persecution led to the word of God to spread and to flourish. And we see that even today in the 21st century. You see, years ago, you might have heard of an organization called ISIS. Despite ISIS, Muslim persecution of Christians in the Middle East was worse than it had ever been before in its entire history. Yet at the same time, there were more Muslims becoming Christians and turning to Jesus for salvation more times than ever before in the history of the world. A missionary by the name of David Garrison spent two and a half years traveling 250,000 miles to interview more than 1,000 Muslims who had converted to Christianity. He tells of a story on Christmas Day in 2011, how he met 20 leaders from a fundamentalist Muslim people group. 19 people had become Christians were baptized. Seventeen were imams. They were former leaders of their mosques. And three were women. And when he asked them, why why haven't you left this community, this community of Muslims, of people who persecute you, who who try to kill you because you've converted to Christianity, why why haven't you gone somewhere else to be safe, to establish a church somewhere else, to gather somewhere where you won't be persecuted, where you won't be harmed, well, you don't have to look over your shoulder. Where well, do you have to lock all your doors and gates all the time? And a woman replied and said to him, when God wanted to reach men, he became a man. If God wanted to reach hyenas, he would have become a hyena. If we want to reach our own people, we've got to stay in our community to reach them. And if you know Islam, you know that that's a very brave thing to say and to do. Because Muslims who convert to Christianity face the death penalty. This is what Garrison said in his book. They were willing to pay the price. That is, these Muslim converts in the 21st century, in the Middle East right now, they're willing to pay the price, even if it meant death, in order to win as many of their family and friends to Christ as possible. The Jewish converts in the 1st century and the Muslim converts in the 21st century both have the same desire, don't they? 
It's not for everyone to like them. Their desire is to share the gospel so that some might be saved, even if it means death, even if it means persecution. I mean, I don't know how you feel about that story and what we read in Acts. I find it very challenging. I feel like it's a, it, it's a personal rebuke to my self-centered desire to be liked. You see, the Jewish converts in this first century and the Muslim converts in the 21st century would rather share the gospel and risk death doing it than to keep their mouths shut so that their friends and family will like them. That they risk their lives to share the gospel and all I have to risk when I share the gospel in my life isn't death, isn't persecution, physical harm, but simply that I might not be liked. They share the gospel fearlessly and I find myself not sharing the gospel willingly. And so if you're anything like me, I wonder whether you'd be up for a challenge. Maybe you have a few friends or family members who aren't Christians. Uh, so for person number one, who you know and love, maybe they know you're a Christian, but they don't know why you're a Christian. And so maybe this year sometime, maybe find an opportunity to share your own personal testimony with them. Share with them why you're a Christian, how you became a Christian. Well, what, what difference Jesus has made in your life? Maybe for person number two. Maybe they've never been to church before. So, so why don't you invite them to church? We're here on Sundays at 10 o'clock every week. Or, or, or maybe to a church event like Christmas later this year. Maybe you can start praying for them now and praying for yourself to have that courage to make that invitation. Or maybe there's another person, person number three. Maybe they, they've got lots of questions about Jesus and Christianity. They know a little bit, but they're a little confused. Well, why don't you invite them to Christianity Explored and come along with them so that they can ask their questions? Maybe that's something to be praying about as well. Courage for ourselves to make that invitation. I mean, these are just some suggestions to help us to see that sharing the gospel isn't standing on a box on Burke Street Mall shouting, Jesus saves. But it's those personal relationships, those ongoing conversations that you can have with people you know and love. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I used to share the, uh, the gospel with a friend all the time, and she, she never became a Christian. Eventually we lost touch. But uh, about four years later, when we were at Melbourne University, I was walking past Union House on the way to uh, another class, and she was walking the opposite way, and she stopped me, and she goes, Hey, David, um, yeah, it's been a long time. And so we just chatted briefly uh, in the dining hall, and she said, I've become a Christian. I was like, oh, well, that's very encouraging. And she said, well, th thanks so much for all those conversations all those years ago because that really helped me. And so now I'm part of this church and I'm involved in these ways. I said, oh, that's really fantastic. Praise God. And I went to my class. I, I haven't seen or spoken to her since. But I was so encouraged and I was so blown away by it because I thought all those conversations all those years ago was just all in vain. 
It meant nothing, it did nothing. But praise God, it did do something. And I was just, just so encouraged. And maybe that's what you need to be reminded of too. That those small conversations, that those acts of love that you do in the name of Jesus, they, they may not go to waste. The work of the gospel is never in vain. God will use all that we are and all that we do for his glory. The reality is that evangelism is hard work. It's hard to share the gospel and risk being disliked. But we need to keep persevering, don't we? We need to keep praying because God's judgment will ultimately fall on our friends and our family who don't know Jesus, who don't repent, who don't live for God but for themselves. And we see that this will happen because we see it in Herod's life in this passage. You see, King Herod thought he had it all. After all, he was a king. He had power. He had wealth. He had people on his side. He, he had influence. He could oppress the Christians. He could make the Jews like him. He even used his power to threaten food supply of innocent people in verse 20. He wasn't a God-fearer, nor was he one who lived in worship of the one and true God. And so look at what happens in verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. I mean, if you were Herod and you were sitting on your throne in your purple robe and all the people surrounding you, just adoring you and being in awe of you, I mean, how good would you feel? The world is your oyster. And yet what happens, verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Now that sounds too ludicrous, too, too extraordinary to be true, doesn't it? How could that happen? Herod stood in the place of God, and the Bible tells us he was struck down by God. Well, if you ever think that the Bible's not true, that these things are made up, well, let me, let me reassure you that this is fact. These things happen. And so there is a reliable historical document written by Josephus. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. That is, he wasn't a Christian. And this is what he wrote about what happened. Herod put on a garment made, of, made wholly of silver and of a contextual, truly wonderful, his flatterers cried out that he was a god. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He was carried into the palace, and when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed his this life. You see, friends, the New Testament records for us history, extraordinary history, but factful history. The persecution of God's church will one day become history. For those who oppose God will be judged by God, and those who believe in God will be saved by God. And King Herod's death is a shadow of the final judgment to come, to come on our friends and our family who do not know and do not believe in Jesus. But we have the good news that we can share that they might believe and they might be saved. 
for God will always triumph. Chapter 12 opened. Do you remember how it opened? Chapter 12 opened with James, the apostle, dead. Peter, the apostle, in prison. And Herod, triumphing. But how does it close? It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Isn't that encouraging? Despite persecution, the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. Religious leaders and kings and governments may want to shut the mouth of God, but God's word will go forth. The good news will be preached, and people will be saved. Amen.